Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. Got a great show for you planned. Guy Talk's going to start in about a minute. And then Hour 2, Beverly Canaris is going to be joining me uh, in studio. So it's going to be a wonderful program. I hope you get a lot out of it. I hope I get a lot out of it because I always learn a lot when I come. It's part of why I love this job because I gain so much wisdom from so many people. I hope you do too. So our power panel today is uh, Justin Jepson and Tom Brock and Tom Parrish and Peter Kapsner is going to be joining us also in just a minute. Is he already here? Oh, awesome. So everyone's here. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi, Bill. Good to be with you, Bill. Remember, this is our microphones, Tom. You don't have to shout. Hi, Bill. There you go. That's way, way better. How's everyone doing? Good, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Cut his mic, would you, Rebecca? Yeah, I think I'm going to tap out early, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so nice to have everyone here. Uh, Tom, Brock, you just uh, got something kind of on your mind to get things started? Yes, I do, Bill. A little bit of heresy that you heard we, uh, listen, everybody, this morning? We just taped our TV show, and I did a show on heresy today. And this is all brand new stuff, and it's some of the worst stuff I've ever heard. Let's hear it. All right. Uh, first item, if you don't mind, here we go real quick. Um, an ELCA pastor, uh, that's the v- liberal branch of Lutheranism, which I used to be and Tom used to be. Um, her name is Laura Gruen. She's a pastor out east, and she said, quote, Jesus was queer. Hmm. God wants you in the most erotic, kinky way. Okay, you almost have to stop. I don't think I can. I know. I can't do this anymore. I, I know. Okay. That's, uh, do, you have another, do you have something else? Yes, I do. All right, but it can't, it can't be any, anywhere near that. Uh, Otherwise, we've got to change the topic. All of these are bad. Uh, let's stop. Let's let dump it then. Next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's literally just too uh, offensive to me. Should we talk about Central Lutheran? Yeah, you can. Okay, you that can one, make a comment. That, one, that okay. one will do. Central Lutheran is the church that got hit by the tornado in 2009 when they were promoting the gay stuff, and they won across the street when the convention passed their desired uh, d- uh, to ordain practicing homosexuals. Well... The woman pastor, one of the pastors is a woman at Central Lutheran. She recently preached on Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, where he said to her that, you know, healing your daughter, but I went to the Jews only. And she said, yeah, but the dogs eat the crumbs. And so Jesus said, great, your faith and healed her. Well, the preaching from the sermon uh, from the woman was that Jesus made a mistake when he said that to her. He wasn't being kind, and he had to repent and apologize. Jesus sees that what he has done is wrong, and he is sorry, quote, Jesus screwed up. Wow. Now, if that's true, then Jesus sinned. And if he sinned, he had to pay for his own sins on the cross. He couldn't pay for ours. Mm -hmm. So there goes our salvation, if you follow that, that teaching of the ELC. There's people in denominational authority making statements like that, Indeed, right? indeed. It's just nuts. Do you want any more? No, okay. I don't. I want to pray for Next. these people. I want to yeah. actually just pray that they would come to the, I know. the saving knowledge of and, Jesus and Christ. It's not only the ELC Lutherans. The same garbage is happening in the United Church of Christ, the United Methodist Church, yeah. the Presbyterian Church USA, and the Disciples of Christ now. But the real question is, why is this happening? 
you know, we're the richest country in the world in terms of our heritage, in terms of Christian influence, in terms of opportunity, in terms of education. Why have we turned to this? Why is this happening in our major denominations? Yeah, yeah. we get that question. You know, what happened? Because, Tom, when you and I were little, the Lutheran Church was a good church. It's a solid it, place. It was biblical. Yes, it was. And and I've got a little answer. Do you have an answer to that? What I've, happened? I've got answers, but go ahead. Well, I think part of the answer is in the 1920s and 30s, some Lutherans went over to Germany uh, and went to the hyper-liberal seminaries there and brought it back. And so now we've got a Lutheran church that used to stand on the Bible the, that is standing on whatever goes through the culture. <laughs> I agree with you. You know, and they talked about Rudolf Altman and so many of these other theologians. They really had some bad, bad teaching. Here's what I see. Lutheranism especially, and some other denominations that came out of the Reformation, were so fixed on being saved by grace through faith, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But they kind of dropped the faith in Jesus, and the only thing that matters is grace, yeah. Every- to the point where we're going to grace everybody to death. Mm-hmm. Nobody is going to be put down. Nobody's going to be corrected. Nobody's going to be told what they're saying is wrong. And nobody's going to hell because of and grace. And nobody is because everybody's going to heaven. And as a result, this has crept in over the years. And you and I know how we fought this for decades, literally, in the church. And it's still going on. The only good thing about it is it's self-destructive. The church itself, the denominations that are doing this are dying no, you bet in our culture. 70,000 a year leave the ELCA Lutheran Church. When the ELCA did their gay decision, and now they have transgender pastors too, but uh, when they did that decision in 2009, caused the biggest church split in American history, and tons of people left. And now they're leaving at 70,000 a year. One of the things that uh, this is a little humorous, so I'll throw this in for what it's worth. The ELCA reminds me of a woman in my first congregation. She had only come occasionally. She was a very attractive woman, been married five times mm-hmm. by the age of 35. She came in and wanted to see me one day, and she said, Pastor, I got a problem with my husband. This was number six, right? And she tells me the problem, and she goes, I've decided I've got to leave him. And she looked at me and she said, what's wrong with these men? (laughs) You know, well, the problem is it's easy to always see the problems elsewhere. The church failed to look at itself. And as a result of failing to look at itself, I heard those kind of crazy statements out of leadership. And they're not going to change the leadership, but the church will simply die. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I know as as you're talking about this. Oh, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, no, Justin, you started out first. I'd rather you jump in. <laughs> All I know well, is I'm not talking. <laughs> well, I just I think to to, to to kind of pull back a little bit, though. I mean, we know that this. I mean, this shouldn't come to as a surprise to us, right? I mean, I mean we can point back to certain conferences and different sure. councils and different, you know, certain religious leaders that and, and theologians that started espousing different ideas and using different authority, base of authority other than scripture, but. You know, as we get closer and closer to Jesus' return, I mean, this godlessness in, this, in a way is going to be increasing as as really the, the ultimate enemy, not in flesh and blood, but but Satan uh, and, and the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. I mean, there's going to be this attack. And I think, you know, this not to cause an, uh, an undue alarm, um, but we should be, we need to be, uh, we need to be sober-minded in these days. And so I think it's, it's a be able to engage in these conversations with grace and truth. But I mean, first Timothy, second Timothy three, you know, he said, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. He goes on to say, you know, avoid such people. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's this idea that, you know, we, we engage 
with grace and truth, but there comes to a time where you just have to let it run its yeah. course. And you're right. I mean, this, this is not going to last because it's not the church. And yeah. if Jesus has removed the lampstand, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, it's only a matter of time before <laughs> the inertia is going to wear off and, and the, the gravity of the consequences are going to set in. And, uh, um, but God's going to keep the, the faithful remnant, you know, in the church. Mm. So, mm. Yeah, those are uh, those are sobering words. I think Justin agreed with your guys' explanation too. I don't know that anybody has the exact explanation as to why, but I think we're pointing at some factors here that might be influencing the direction of some of these church denominations relative to their embrace of um, same gender relationships and and transgenderism and some of these different forms of sexuality. And and I think. You know, guys have nailed it. I, I remember sitting on a, a plane pre-COVID, and I ran into a, a former pastor friend of mine who was a um, pastor in the United Methodist Church at the kind of at the time when they were going through their voting process about whether they were going to embrace same-gender uh, attracted pastors and gay and people in gay relationships as as part of the pastoral ministry. And he said something that got my attention at that time. He said, "You know." Uh, we ended up, they, they didn't end up having the vote go in his favor, which actually he wanted. He wanted to embrace same-gender relationships as part of pastoral ministry, and and yet it was voted down. And, and he said, uh, actually, the conversations going on about the embrace of, of uh, gay, lesbian, transgenderism, all of these different letters, is primarily a first-world, wealthy kind of embrace. It is not happening at all in the third world. Mm-hmm. And, and with the United Methodist Church, being a global organization compared to maybe the ELCA and some of the uh, of the other churches, uh, it was voted down in the United Methodist Church because uh, South America and Africa and other churches yes. around the world said no, thank you. And yep. and so there, there's there's a correlation. How I understand that correlation, I don't entirely know. But the, but the wealthier people are are getting, the hollower their lives are, and the emptier their lives become, and they begin to search out other forms of meaning to try to find some measure of, of stability or something in their lives. And, and sexual deviancy has been one of those things in the first world. So there's an interesting correlation there. Number one, I think number two, the other thing, it's a quote that I've mentioned before on air, but it's haunted me for a number of years in, in which a, a sociologist scholar from the East coast of the United States had done some study from the perspective of history and said, that we we see these gender lines getting blurred and we see same gender relationships cropping up in different civilizations in history. And she ended up saying when they uh, crop up in these different um, countries and empires uh, throughout history, people always think they're becoming more enlightened and more mm-hmm. sophisticated and closer to the truth. But actually, it's a sign of a civilization that no longer believes in itself and it's on the verge of unraveling. And, yes. and that's a few years ago now. And you think about where we are as a country and how unbelievably divided and, and unraveling it feels right now. Uh, there's just probably some things to pay attention to in that, too, that I don't fully understand. But I think, Justin, your explanation from Romans 1 is among the best of them that just speaks generally to the human condition that that seems to persist in so many different times and places. And, and clearly, at times, God removes his lampstand, as you said, and, and, and this is the result of it. Well, Peter, 2009 is when the ELCA Lutherans voted to ordain practicing homosexuals. Some years later, they got their first homosexual bishop with a husband. Now, the, there, there used to be two ELCA seminaries in Pennsylvania. Uh, they shrunk, so they had to merge into one. They hired a new woman president. When it was discovered in her past, she used to believe homosexuality is wrong. She had to resign. 
or she she stepped down. So who did they just hire to be the new president of of United the- uh, Theological Lutheran Seminary in in Pennsylvania? The homosexual bishop with a husband. And yeah. I mean, it, so uh, my seminary, Luther Seminary here in St. Paul, which has gone radically pro-transgender, uh, is just they had to sell off buildings because they're shrinking so bad. So, you know, as you can do this and spit in God's face and do this, but uh, just wait a few years and see what's going to happen to your church. Mm-hmm. Take yeah. a little break. We're just getting started with Guide Talk. Let me know what questions or issues you'd like us to chew on, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-93-FAITH. We're excited for our next week coming up. Our fall share is back in full swing. So this is the last of Guide Talk for two weeks. So get your questions in, 877-933-2484. Be right back. talk let me know what your questions are and i will pass them on to the panel power panel is tom brock tom Parrish, justin jepson dr peter kapsner peter i think you got one additional comment about what we were discussing right before break yeah maybe just a quick one that uh in and i think all of what we covered was true in terms of some of the leadership and being led astray and the sinfulness and all of those sorts of things but i think there's another dimension that can lead to some compassion in all of this too for people that are really confused and caught up in it. And and I think about um, somebody like Jen Hatmaker, who was in the news recently for some of the difficulty of, of a divorce that she's going through, obviously a popular Christian writer and, and speaker, blogger. But a, a couple of years ago, she changed her position very publicly on uh, beginning to advocate for same-gender relationships. And, and that came out of a response to one of her children, who I don't remember if, if one of her children wanted um, to come out as transgender or in a gay relationship. But I think another part of what we see here is people are increasingly experiencing some of the people that they love the dearest, and and in particular their children, as their children are being taught different kinds of curriculum and out on social media and and, and gay pride months and all these sorts of things. And and our our kids are so confused. Bill, I, I, you know, I've said this often, but in my classrooms in in a wonderful Christian college like uh, Northwestern and some of our best and brightest evangelical kids coming into the classroom, they are terribly confused about this. They they know or believe that that it's wrong, but they really don't know why. And how this is affecting our loved ones mm-hmm. ends up then affecting the families, which yeah. then the church is almost always reactionary to what's going on in the congregation and and doesn't want to lose their congregants. And and I think there's a real invitation here to for churches to lead in this area as opposed to react and respond and just embrace what's going on among their congregants. And and I think that's where some of the, I think, where I'm a little bit disheartened is, is sometimes there's a lack of leadership about how to minister and shepherd to all of the families. And there are, I think, far more than we imagine and Peter, that are really confused by this. Let me add to what Peter said. Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus knew this was coming because every pastor I've seen that has changed the position from what the Bible says about whether it's homosexuality, living together, abortion, whatever it is, had a family experience Mm -hmm. where somebody in their family. And so they said, my son and daughter's behavior is more important to me than what Jesus said. Now, they would not come out and say it exactly that way. But that's the challenge we all face. How do we stand for Jesus in a world 
that will always pull us away from what he said. And yet, this is exactly where we need to be. So the local church needs to be articulate on this, still loving, but at the same time, there needs to be a firmness because Jesus did both. Tom, you and I know, uh, he's dead now, but a leader in the Lutheran church who pushed the church toward the gay stuff. Why? Because his son was a homosexual. And I mean, if... I have had the same-sex attraction struggle most of my life, yeah. and uh, I still think it's wrong. So here's the deal. So I, I went to Florida, and I, I gave a, a talk on this, and, and I shared, you know, this has been my struggle, but because of scriptures, I don't go that direction, and I, I want to be saved. And so I got done with my talk. A woman stands up, but my grandson's a homosexual. And then another woman, but my son's a homosexual. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've had that struggle. What, that makes it right because your grandson's doing it? Give me a break. Is Jesus yeah. more important to you than your grandson? See, the real Jesus of the Bible is going to offend everybody sooner or later because Jesus stands for something that we don't even begin to understand, and yet as his disciples, we're called to conform our thinking to his thinking. And when we don't do that, I think we've really missed the mark. All right, Tom Parrish, I'm going to have a request. Um, I'm going to make a request of you, if that's all right. Please. Yep. This uh, lovely listener said, thank you guys for your discussion. Can one of you pray for the churches and their false doctrine? Would you do that right now? Sure will. Pray, pray against their false doctrine, Tom? Against it, not for it. Well, the Lord already knows we're against it because it's his word. <laughs> Preach it, Tom. Let, let us pray, Tom, and everybody else. Lord Jesus, you know exactly what's going on, and you know why your church is behaving the way it is. You know how we've compromised the truth. And Lord, I don't think there's anybody out there that doesn't want to love you. They just don't know how to love you. So, Lord, teach us how to do that. Give us boldness and courage and help us to love you so much, Lord, that we will tell the truth to even Mm -hmm. our family members because that's real love. Mm -hmm. And so, Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Amen. Another great listener, Justin, said, I'm part of the free Lutheran denomination, and it's almost difficult to admit that I go to a Lutheran church because uh, sometimes it's just assumed that we believe the same as the ELCA, right. although it does not make, although it does make for some good conversations. Too. Every, every other Lutheran denomination is pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. It's just the big one that's very liberal. All right. He also said, I also miss Tom Brock as a part of it. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> You guys want to take a pot shot at any of those guys right now? <laughs> oh, it's, it's empty, Bill. It's tempting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking about uh, Jesus on the cross, which I do every day. I think about the cross every day and the sacrifice that was made for my sin. And when you think about the complete sinlessness of Jesus, was there at one point at that moment, was he the most evil human being that's ever lived? having taken on the entire sin of the world and at the same time being the most sinless, sinless perfect person at the same time? It's interesting mm. because the, the Scripture verse said that he became sin for us. Mm. And I get if you look that. At the, if you look at the Greek, it doesn't say he took it on as a cloak or he identified with it. He became sin yeah. at that moment. The sin and, of the world. Yeah. I remember To be, to be punished. He became the. He took on the pun. Yeah. Jesus never sinned. You got to make no. Right. no I'm he not saying sinned. he did. He okay. never sinned. Okay. But at that moment, when my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He was forsaken. He became the yeah. object yes. of all sin yeah. in the entire universe. Yeah. I remember Dr. Dan Freeberg, who I worked with. He started the seminary in Tanzania. Greek scholar, and he, he and I talked about this very verse. And he said, "Tom, for that brief moment on the cross, Jesus became." For you and me, the most evil man on the face of the earth, absorbing all of our sin. And I had to think about that for a minute. Jesus did not commit sin, 
but he absorbed it like a sponge. Mm-hmm. And if, if you get to do dishes at mm-hmm. your house, Tom, like I do at mine, that sponge fills up with stuff pretty fast. And it's got to be wrung out. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Yep. And I just preached this. There, I think his name was Homer Larson, World War One. I. I think he got the Medal of Honor. A live grenade lands in his foxhole. He throws himself on it. It kills him, but it saves the rest of the men in his foxhole. Uh, that's what Jesus did on the cross. The, yes. gr- the grenade is the wrath of God that yeah. I deserve. Yeah. Jesus throws himself on the wrath of God, absorbs it so we could be forgiven. Right. I wonder, though, that's such an interesting question and a nuance, you know, and I, I, it also, another scripture, you know, Tom, you mentioned the second Corinthians five, um, and that, yeah, he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin in order yep. that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. But I was also thinking of Romans eight, eight, three, but you know, and, and he says by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I just, I, I wonder to, to what degree that Jesus's dual nature you know, had a had a role in that. You know, as he was fully God and fully man. And I think sometimes we can kind of get into this modalistic, kind of a dualistic piece of you know mindset of, you know, it was only, you know, this Jesus did this as a man versus he did this as God, and, and, it's, and it's, he's the God man. It's a both and. But I, I just wonder. And this is as a response, continuing that train of thought and conversation, not as a as a, you know, neat little tidy bow answer, but just that role of the uniqueness of Jesus's dual nature in one person and and the role obviously that positioned him as the only person who would qualify and be positioned to take upon the right. sin and actually have to be a sinless sacrifice but that idea that he was actually presented as a sin offering and condemned sin in the flesh and so yeah i just i wonder if that that the whole, that whole point of jesus being separated from God was there was there a, there was a physical death was there a spiritual death in that moment as well you know it's you interesting know? because gnosticism has been around for almost 2000 years and it's very prominent in today's culture um, there are media people that push gnosticism basically they say you know the the man jesus died on the cross but the christ spirit left him before he was crucified so there's always this division as i've understood the scriptures and i was taught and i've looked at it pretty hard over the years when Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus in her womb, and he became man. At that moment, yes, he has dual nature. He's fully God and fully man, but now they're totally inseparable. You can't separate one from the other, and so make the man one thing and make the God the other thing. So it's all together, and that's why when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what did lambs do? They died uh, horrible deaths, and their blood was shed for us. So did God Uh die on the cross? It technically, in one sense, yes. I, I think in one sense you got yes, to say that. Absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, uh, I don't know that we'd say that for three days the Son of God didn't exist, but we want to say God died on the cross, the God-man died on the cross. Yes. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Guy Talk. If you have a question or an issue you would like us to talk about, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Guy Talk's happening. We've got the power panel of pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner. And we sure appreciate your calls, your text messages. We've got Pam on the line, and Pam's got a question for the power panel. Pam, welcome. Nice to have you on the show. You from um, my phone in the car, although I've pulled over to okay. ask you this question. Thank you. Nice and safe. I'm just, right. I'm just wondering, you know, we all have, not all of us, but many of us have children that are in sinful relationships, whether they're living with somebody that they're not married to, um, homosexual relationships. I am just wondering, you know, how often do we bring their sin before them? Uh, we don't want to, you know, I, I don't want my child to not be part of my life. Um, I, I do tell them when they're doing something that I feel is ungodly. But how often do we just challenge them on what they're doing? That's a great question, Pam. Let me spin the answer wheel, and it landed on Peter. You go first. (laughs) I am not in studio. I don't believe you for a second. (laughs) Uh, I I mean, and yeah, what a great question, Pam. And and I think that is, um, I think that's such a pervasive top of the mind question for so many people. And and, um, there's probably a lot of different ways to answer that question, I think. I think we have to be one of the things that I think is is maybe most helpful is that it's one thing to be able to say to our kids and to our loved ones that that behavior is wrong. But but if we don't have a robust why underneath it, if we if we don't understand a couple different things, a what is the power, beauty and wonder of sexuality and the one flesh relationship uh, in as it's described in the biblical text, if we if we don't have a why they're going to they're going to tune us out pretty quickly. They're just going to say, "I don't know what you're talking about." I mean, my friends are fine, this is fine, all of that kind of stuff. So, you need the why of that and then to also just understand a bit about what influences are affecting them. So, I don't think it's a question of saying uh, or, or hiding from the fact that this is a sinful thing, and, and I don't think um, we should shy away from that. But I would just uh, suggest to increasingly equip ourselves to to understand the why because and I say that because I, I teach this crazy class on sexuality, and, and for a number of years I didn't really have a why underneath uh, this, and, and we just were talking about it in my class the other day saying, so if a marriage really boils down to two people who want to have companionship in a monogamous relationship for a lifetime, if that's what marriage really is, then there's nothing about what I just said, a monogamous relationship, a companionship for a lifetime. There's nothing about that that would say, well, I, can't I have that in a gay relationship? Can't, can't I be in a monogamous, lifelong companionship relationship that way? And, and of course, I mean, by that criteria, there's, um, there's no way that you could uh, object to that. You could say the Bible says it's wrong, but if there's not the why behind it, and, and there's just so much more, if we're going to challenge our young people, and I think we need to, I think we have to do a better job of equipping ourselves as the why. Why is it male and female only? What is God inviting us into? What is the purpose of these things? Because young people are pretty skeptical about authority, 
and, and they're not just going to say, oh, now that you said it, I believe it. Um, there, there really needs to be the compelling whys that explain it. And that's too much of a conversation for just, you know, a show today. But I think that's what I, that's the only caution I would say, Pam, is that we do need to challenge our young people and we need to challenge them substantially, but we need to challenge them effectively in the same kinds of ways that people like Lee Strobel, who's been an apologist for the faith in general, really has compelling whys or a Jay Warner Wallace, who, when you, you listen to him talk, it's compelling at the end. There's a why behind it. And, and I think, We've had too many sermons for too long that are like 15 minutes long, and there's three quick points and a couple quick applications without the real equipping and empowering that I think people need to deal with the complexity of this. Hmm. Yeah, I think alongside of that, Peter, that's that's such a yeah, this is such a complex situation, and obviously, Pam, you're going to know you know your loved one, whether your kids, best, and I think um, knowing how to approach that. And one of the things that comes to my mind, um, in addition to what Peter said was, you know, while I don't have kids that are old enough yet, um, to, to sin in that way, because <laughs> they're only three and one, they have other, other things that we're working through. But I, as my role as a youth pastor, um, I would often have parents that would come to me after their, their children would graduate and go to college or, take a gap year or whatever else, and they would, you know, start moving into these, you know, behaviors and other relationships and start wanting to move in together and that type of thing. Ask me, well, you know, what should, what should I do? What should I, you know, and, and of course, you know, there's not a silver, silver bullet answer. And, and I think we, on one hand, need to, you know, know how to confront the sin that still shows that you, you are absolutely totally for them and their wholeness and, and, and that, that you're not trying to be a, you know, a killjoy, but you want to, you know, I like the way I think John Piper says that he's God's not a killjoy, but he hates everything that kills joy. So, I mean, actually, the, the, his design and plan is actually for our flourishment and for our joy, which brings him glory. And the the one compelling this thing that I, I've gone back to you over and over again, and again, this this the Holy Spirit will have to apply this for you specifically yes. with your particular relationship. But I just think of the way that the prophet Nathan confronted David. In his sin, and you know he could have he could have with Bathsheba and the killing of, his, of her husband Uriah in the front lines of the battle, he could have stormed in there. I mean, on one hand, again, the, he knew the relationship as a king. You know, he had a, a level of respect and that type of thing. But he could have right away, as a prophet, said, "You're you, what you did is sin. You committed adultery and you committed murder," and that would have been absolutely true. Right. But he ended up telling him this story. He told him this parable and. And then David was able to see a window in to see, you know, the the severity of of that act, and then turn around to say, "That's you," <laughs> and 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 not that you're trying to paint, you know, your loved one, your do- your son or daughter into a corner, but sometimes I think the 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 Holy Spirit can can give you a picture, can give you a parable that that on one hand confronts the sin explicitly, but on the other hand shows the grace and the love that you have for them um, at, the, at, at the same time. And yeah. that, that's that, it's that kindness that will lead them to repentance. Yeah. I, Justin, I appreciate it because I, I'm hearing you say that, that it's not about whether or not we confront uh, or comp- of course we're going to confront, but the method by which we do it, uh, th- there has been a distinct tuning out to the angry method, to the to the mm-hmm. I'm mad at you method, to the shouting method, to all of that. And and that's just a method that doesn't you're not standing for the truth any stronger by shouting and yelling. Sometimes we think if we shout and yell at people's sin that we're really standing for the truth. Nathan absolutely mm-hmm. stood for the truth and he did it in a different kind of way. And I think that's sort of the strategic invitation that 
we need to think about now related to what's going on is is how do we engage in the kind of method that's not compromising mm-hmm. but also um, comes from a place of, uh, of just people can hear it differently. I think about one of my very best friends whose son came out uh, as gay a couple of years ago, and, and he took more of sort of a long view method. He, he was very clear with his son. He, of course, he told him, he said, I don't agree with these choices. There was no compromise on that. But he didn't keep yelling at him every time his son kind of came towards him. And now two years later, uh, through a variety of circumstances and events, uh, his son has, has turned uh, as the prodigal son turned. Uh, and 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 yeah. as he began to turn, he's asking different kinds of questions. And and his dad probably would have risked alienating him for a much longer period of time had his method always been shouting at him, even as he stood for the truth. Yeah. He stood for the truth in a graceful kind of way that allowed his son to begin to turn back. And it's just fascinating to watch right now. So yeah. that I'm not going to say there's one size fits all, well, but, but I think we do have to be careful not to equate yelling with, uh, with truth. Well, Peter, here's, here, my thought is kind of what you just said. If I had a child, if I had a son who Do you was have a, sons, son, I, I, and daughters? <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> okay. I said if I had a son who was living with his girlfriend, I would have to pray about the timing, and I'd pray God help me be humble and truthful. But I would have a heart-to-heart talk with that son. First Corinthians 6 says fornicators don't go to heaven. I'm concerned about your eternal soul. And I would, I would share that, and I'd make it, I'd do it humbly and lovingly and make sure he heard it. And then I don't know that I'd ever bring it up again. Mm. You know, you pray for him after that point. And, I mean, I had a relative who is kind of a, re- a rebellious person who was living with her boyfriend. I think she knew I didn't like it at all. And she would say something periodically, and I was just absolutely quiet. And I remember she said to me once, you don't agree with what I just said, do you? And I said, nope. And sometimes our silence is more powerful than yeah. speaking. So we don't need to nag, but we do need to have one heart-to-heart talk and then then pray. Okay, I'm the oldest guy here. I've got three sons, 45, 43, and 41. I'm only 52. We haven't figured that out yet, but we're working on it. Here's what I've learned, and I learned this in ministry a long time ago. In the early days, I wanted to debate. I wanted logic people into the kingdom of God. I knew tons of scripture verses I could lay on them, and I thought that would do it, you know, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What I've learned over the years are a couple of things. One, I have to ask the Lord for divine appointments. Not when I'm ready to go talk to my son or these people, but when the Lord's ready to talk to them. Secondly, when I used to go into the battle, it would be me against them. Well, that's your interpretation, Dad. That's the way you feel. What I finally began to do is say to them, you know the Bible. You know what Jesus says about marriage. How do you think Jesus feels about this? Have you talked to him about it? I started doing that with congregants. I started doing that in counseling with people. Uh, When people come in, I'd start saying to them, how do you think Jesus feels? How are you responding to him in this? And I'll be honest with you, I have seen so many lives transformed, not because I had a good logical approach to it, but suddenly they got confronted with Jesus himself, and they had to start thinking about it. I had one guy come back to me after about two months. He had been living with a girl, and he, he wanted. now they wanted to get married, and they had actually moved out uh, from one another after they met with me. And he said, once you brought up Jesus, and I grew up in the church, once you brought up Jesus, that was haunted me every single night when I go to bed because I'd see Jesus standing in front of me saying, why aren't you obeying me? Why aren't you doing what I've said? And I think among Christians, and especially Christian kids, We've got to get them back to facing Jesus, not just mom or dad, because they can write us off. Pretty hard to write Jesus off. Amen.
Nice uh, discussion, guys. And uh, Pam, great call. Thank you so much for uh, yeah. pulling over okay. and making the Thank call. Thank you. Yeah, good. It's really nice. All right, here's another question. Uh, Jim writes in and says, how do you feel about firearms for self-defense? I always think about Jesus putting on Malchus's ear and saying, put away your weapons, but not to be able to purchase if anything happened to Second Com- uh, Amendment concerns me. That well, we, wheel did not land on me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we had a nice discussion about this last week. We did. We talked this about this very issue last week. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a trap, you know, it, because we can sound so holy to be against guns and all that kind of thing. Here's the bottom line. My grandson is learning to drive. He's 16. I go out with him every night for about an hour. I've discovered that a car is one of the biggest weapons out there, and I'm trying to get him conscious of other drivers and what's going on. A gun is simply a tool. In the right hands, it can be used properly. Policemen's hands, if they use it properly, security people. But on the other hand, should a Christian, how do they respond? And the, the reformers struggled with this. What was a just war and what was an unjust war? Is it right to defend yourself or is it you let somebody come in and rob your house, you know, rape your, your wife and murder your kids? Where do you stand up? And you look at the Old Testament especially. The children of Israel were in a lot of wars that the Lord said was okay. Matter of fact, when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, you know, he, he had people literally standing in the gap so that with, nobody would break in while they're weapons. building the, with yeah, weapons. Yeah. So I think it goes back to whose hands are these in? If it's in an unrighteous person's hand that doesn't care about others, yeah, it's a danger. There's no question about that. But if it's in a righteous person's hand, if they're using it properly, if they're using it primarily to do what's right and do, mm-hmm. and I believe you have a right to defend yourself as a Christian, I don't have an issue at all. And, and Romans 13 says, God has given the government the sword to protect yeah. us from evildoers. Yeah. And so I think it's fine to be a Christian policeman. I think you can be a Christian soldier yeah. because the soldier said to John the Baptist, what must we do to repent? And he didn't say stop being soldiers. No. He just said stop you know, extorting money out of people. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, a lot of good questions still left. If you have uh, a question, let me know what it is. I bet I can squeeze it in today. 877-933-2484. 877 faith Be right back. Talk. Bill, those what? are some groovy 1960 bossa nova hits. Why, yes, Would it is. Would you like me to sing? No, please Blame don't. Blame it on the bossa nova. No, if you can sing if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Just turn off your mic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, here's a comment, a question. I think we need to see, acknowledge, own, mourn, grieve, and repent of our own sin, not our spouses, neighbors, friends, nor anyone else's, our own and our nation's. How do we as an individual and as a nation do this? I think of Daniel. Daniel mm-hmm. repented of his own sin and the sin of his people, if you remember that prayer. So we do both. We get before the Lord in our knees and confess our sins, and then we confess the sins of our nation, too. Well, I can't repent for somebody else. All I can do is offer them the invitation to repent and to be right with the Lord. But the bottom line is, I've got to be right, and that means I need to get on my knees, and I need to be willing to be honest with the Lord 
and sometimes honest with others about what's wrong with me or what I've done that's inappropriate. And I know, especially when you're a pastor in a church, somehow we have this idea that good pastors are always right. Uh, that's not true. I've worked with Tom Brock. Ouch. So I know. But the bottom line is, are we willing to admit that when we're wrong and ask forgiveness of others? And again, not too many can do that. It's a shame. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, actually I've been thinking a, a little bit about this in terms of just the, really the lost language of lament, you know, and as we look at such a such a biblical, rich, um, you know, rhythm in terms of, of course, we have the whole book of Lamentations, right, that Jeremiah wrote, and, and um, you know, 40% of the Psalms are, are lament Psalms. And I think we sometimes too quickly, and I think this is kind of more of the triumphalistic, you know, mentality that we have often, often in the West, um, that to really be able to sit in the reality and the gravity of suffering. And, and, you know, I don't think we truly reflect enough, you know, Bill, you're talking about earlier about how you think about the cross, Jesus on the cross every day. And I think if, you know, we can't be flippant about the severity of sin and the price that it costs in order for that to be covered, in order for us to be counted as righteous. You know, the thing that literally, I mean, we were just talking about that earlier, the Son of God became sin. You know, and I think that to really allow that to sink in to the point where there's truly a godly grief, um, that it should, it should, it ought to bring us to tears. And I think sometimes, you know, I I remember just re- this is this is a, a few years ago actually, but you know I I remember I was just in the super dry season in my in my in my walk with the Lord, and I was just you know going from day to day, whatever else, and I was literally I was in the Target uh, in the aisle at Target, and I was like, Lord, why am I so dry? And I just so so clearly, but so sweetly, and yet like strongly, the Holy Spirit whispered. When's the last time you repented of your sin? Mm. And I just—I almost—I mean, out of a little mini revival in the bread aisle, I mean, I literally I sat there and I was like, "Lord, I, wow, I, I just—I just kind of think about sin. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm repented. I'm covered. But to actually think through and and say, Holy Spirit, search my heart and know me. Try me if there's any anxious way in me, and and lead me to the to everlasting life. And and to ask the Holy Spirit to search us. And and to specifically, you know, uh, repent of of sins and 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 really that idea it's it's I need to do that on a daily basis. But I think learning that language of lament and being able to know that you know what my sin isn't just about me and what I do against God and and it, I do sin when I sin against God it impacts every aspect of my life and it actually impacts all of my relationships around me and that should cause us to grieve. But yet at the same time, we don't stay there. That repentance leads to refreshing. It does lead to hope and into God's redeeming power for what was lost because of because of the sin that we chose uh, to, to engage in. So, yeah, I think that's a great a great point. Um, and I think that I think recovering that language of lament and sitting in the weightiness and the suffering and the in in the reality of, of sin in a broken, sinful world. Um, and knowing that God meets us right in the midst of that and, and shepherds us through it so that we can continue to experience the abundant life that he provides. It's interesting. It'd be nice if every church had a small prayer room. What I mean by that is, and I saw this one time, and it kind of caught me off guard. You walk in, and it was nothing but mirrors. I mean, you look up, there were mirrors. You looked ahead, there were mirrors. You looked at the side. I said to the pastor, why is that the prayer room? He said, we came to realize a long time ago, that until you look in the mirror at yourself and get honest with Jesus, 
You really can't help anybody else. And that left an impression on me. And I really do believe that would not be a bad thing to have, you know, in the church. Well, tomorrow night I'm preaching at a tent revival, and I'm going to make the point that when you come to a revival, if you get convicted of your sin, that's good, but that's not revival. You know, when the atheist beats his wife up, he feels bad too. What's revival is when you are so sorry, you actually start fighting your sin. Right. And I had a conversation with a buddy of mine a couple of days ago, and Christian guy that has a porn problem, and he feels bad about it. But I finally said to him, well, you know, you got to do what I do. You got to put covenant eyes on your computer, on your iPhone. I've got an elderly Christian man that holds me accountable. And I said to him, you know, it's good you feel bad was my point, but now are you going to start fighting this? You're just going to keep wallowing in it. So I, I think we need to confess our sins and the sins of our nation. Right. But it's not just confessing, it's right. then fighting. Right. Well, you know, confessing without a plan is useless. Mm-hmm. Well said. All right. Um, I want to circle back to how I slammed the door on you, Tom Brock, right in the beginning of the show. Ouch. Did that hurt? Uh, just, a, just a tiny bit. Yeah, emotionally, I thought I damaged you a little bit. <laughs> but the point that uh, Jan has made, which is a good one, is um, yes, I guess because I don't know if people realize what is going on in some of the denominations like the ELCA. It is outrageous, and maybe it needs to be pointed out. Um, and she is suggesting that, although it's offensive, it, it may be important to understand. And I would agree with that, mm-hmm. uh, but I would encourage you to maybe try to do some of the uh, reading online. I, for some reason, I think of First uh, Corinthians uh, 14, chapter uh Verse 20 that says, in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Yes, right. And, and some of this is so outrageously evil, I don't want to mention it. Yeah, I know. And there's a balance here somewhere. I know there is. Yeah, there is. And so, I, I mean, I, I have to tell people that the ELCA pays for abortions with offering dollars because no pastor is going to get in the pulpit and telling them because it will wreck their uh, fund driving uh, campaign. So I got to mention, I have to pray on this too, Bill, because it's, so, it's my calling to talk about this stuff but it is so negative that I got to just be balanced and say, hey, there's wonderful things about the Christian life, too. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, Jesus said, you know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. If we don't know the truth, we don't know really yeah. what's going on, yeah. and then we don't know what to do. So there's a balance. So there's a balance. Mm-hmm. All right. We just got a few minutes left. A question came in about uh, a spiritual um, discipline called Reiki or Reiki. Reiki. Mm-hmm. It's a Japanese technique for stress reduction and relaxation, and it is ministered by laying on of hands and is based in, on the idea that some unseen life force energy flows through us and is what causes us to be alive. And his sister is getting involved in that and was wondering what to think about it. It sounds like it's right from the pit of hell. It does. I, it is. I, I, would, do a, I would do a word search on Google saying Reiki cult because I do not think that's from the Lord and mm-hmm. get, get a whole article on why. Yeah, I, just real briefly on that. I, and while I don't know a ton about all the details of it, my my wife, when she's she's an occupational therapist, and she's worked with um, a few nurses that practice that, and uh, she's had conversations with them about you know just really the heart behind it, the source of it. It's it's uh, when I know of it, it, it's antithetical to 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 what we would deem as appropriate for Christians, and it's something to stay away from. It's, as it's it's not drawing upon the, you know, there's a spiritual element to it, but it's, it's I think it's re- entering into the realm of the demonic R- rather than being R-E-I-K-I, R-E-I-K-I. Mm-hmm. Well, it also comes down to this. You've got to give people 
an opportunity to come back to you when things go bad. And what I've learned to do over the years, I will say to people, you know, I don't believe I could practice that. I'm not sure that Jesus wants you practicing that. It doesn't fit with Scripture. However, when you begin to hear voices, when you begin to have thoughts that you can't control, when you can't sleep at night because you're afraid or whatever else, please come back and talk to me. I think I can help you. Mm -hmm. Because people step into this thinking they have control. And sooner or later, it turns on them. It's like a trap. And suddenly they don't have control. And I've lost, I can't tell you how many friends I've lost that have gotten into this stuff. When the Beatles got in with the Maharisha, Mahayogi, and, you know, transcendental meditation, so many of them got into the meditation. And then weird things began to happen. They couldn't control. And some of them even committed suicide. I didn't know back then what this was all about. Mm -hmm. Now I've got a pretty good understanding. So I say to people, when you start hearing the voices, when you can't sleep, when you're having dreams that are scaring you, please give me a call. I think Mm -hmm. I can help you. And you know what? I've gotten those calls over the years. Another listener jumped in with, the local ELCA has become a social justice machine. I got away from it, but my wife stayed and loves it. And then a little sad, smiley, yeah. little sad yeah. emoticon. So, I'm very sad about yeah. that. Now, I got another listener that uh, wanted us to discuss Romans 13. And we don't. I want to take time to do that. So we'll do that in two weeks. Um, he wants us to discuss... Romans 13, he's fretting over the election he feels unnecessarily. He wants us to discuss Romans 13, which we will do. Be fine. All right, that wraps up God Talk. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen, for being part of this. And uh, thanks, guys. I look forward to two weeks from today resuming this. That's uh, it for God Talk, but we've got a great second hour coming up. Beverly Canaris is going to be joining me, and we're going to talk about the resurrected body. Maybe you don't like your body. Don't worry, you're going to get a much, much better one. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.